Hi, everyone, and welcome to the European Startup Show, where every week I talk to exciting startups in Europe to learn more about the challenges and strategies they use to scale their business. Before we get into the podcast, a word from our sponsors on this episode. Chargebee is the leading subscription billing platform that powers some of the best SaaS startups, such as Hopkins, Bendesk, Livestorm, and Team Leader. The platform is powerful for startups to navigate complex tax compliance, invoicing, and billing regulations. You can also experiment with different pricing models and localize pricing and checkout experience. Check them out at chargebee.com. E-Residency is a digital gateway to the Estonian startup scene for foreign founders and entrepreneurs. The birthplace of Skype, Wise, and Bolt, Estonia has many advantages for early-state startups for doing business remotely. 90,000 e-residents have already joined. Read more about what they offer on their website at eresident.gov.ee. And now, let's get into today's episode. I'm delighted to have Peter Specht, partner at Creandum, on the show today. Peter is one of the powerhouses of Creandum's London office. And as partner, Peter is geographically focused on the dark region and Western Europe. But having spent some time in the Creandum San Francisco office, his influence and network reaches far beyond Europe. Before Peter joined Creandum, he spent three years at Bain & Company, and prior to that, he worked at Google and at Rocket. Peter focuses on SaaS and B2B marketplaces and currently sits on the boards of Creandum portfolio companies such as Factorial, Cargo One, Twice, Amy, Abacom, Car on Sale, and co-led investments in Voy and Cake. In this podcast, we'll touch on some of the market developments, because there's been so much happening in the news but we'll also spend most of the time talking about one of the most important topics for most startups, which is fundraising for Series A and a winning process for Series A, which Peter has a lot of experience in, and I'm really looking forward to getting into. Welcome, Peter. Hey, Anita. Thanks for having me today, and you know, it's great to be on here. Excellent. So, Peter, the budget just got announced. We are in recession. There's been a tightening of the belt across the economy. Is there some specific advice that Creandum and you are giving your portfolio companies on how they should be working in this environment? Yeah, I'm a very timely topic, of course, and uh, we're having budget discussions for next year's with many of our portfolio companies. But I think it's 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 probably what you also hear in the market is that's what we're doing with portfolio companies, which is looking through the assumptions for next year's, both on the revenue side, but also on the cost side. On the revenue side, I think in some areas you can already feel it, but one has to account for potentially some headwind that is coming even more in terms of macro, in terms of um, in the B2B space, let's say for SaaS companies, the willingness to spend on the customer side, on new SaaS tools, on increasing SaaS tools, I think also in particular, if you're in the SME segment, churn is something that that is a topic and there's a risk at least that churn in the next, in the next year might look higher than past years that we had because more companies revise their cost side as well and the SaaS spend they have. And likewise, on the cost side, we've already done over the past months with many companies, had the discussions around becoming slightly more leaner or like mm -hmm. maybe slowing down hiring a little bit compared to last year where it was very much about aggressive hiring aggressive expansion aggressive also cost expansion and so it's our advice is to just be very prudent assume for a little bit worse than you are used to and take and in that sense become focus more on efficiency mm -hmm. and focus focus on 
the right things and not solving problems with people, but solving problems by putting the right focus on it or prioritization. And that can often lead to a more lean, efficient organization and better and healthy burn multiples, which investors yeah. look very closely at and which will become even more important for your next round of funds, funding the state of health of your business. So you think that metric around burn multiple is something that's going to bubble up to the top as one of the key metrics to watch? Yes, depending on stage. I think at the very early stage, burn multiple is still very hard. There you look at a little bit more yeah. overall burn compared to stage because in at seed and series A stage, you still need to invest quite a bit into product and building the right solution while at the same time, revenue are still on a very low level. And if you are at 500K or 1 million AR, burn multiples for men, most companies won't look good. So I'm everything which is below three to four million AR, I'm a bit skeptic towards the burn multiple. Mm. But everything above three, four, five million AR is, I think, where the burn multiple really comes into place. When it's less than three, four, what's the metric that to track to make sure you're being capital efficient and you're focusing on the right things? I think it's still wise to track the burn multiple, but I think and the revenue per employee, for example, that you're doing. Mm. But I think you need to really track it by stage of where, at what stage am I into investing to my product? At what stage am I in generating revenues and these kind of things? There, it's a bit more looking at it holistically each time instead of, let's say, a 10 million ARR and you're growing. It's often, okay, you have certain benchmarks for burn multiples, like below one is amazing. One to one and a half is great. One and a half to two is good. Everything above yeah. two is a bit more challenging. There's more certain defined standards where the ratios will simply look different at, at C to series A stage when you are between 100K ARR and, and one and a half million ARR. It's just, or two million ARR, it's just different. Okay, that's really helpful. The other market news that I wanted to get your news, that get your views on, was the FTX crypto trading platform bust that happened. I was reading it and I was thinking, my God, the collapse not only left the crypto world reeling, but in a way also the VC world. Sequoia Capital is a tier one VC firm. They've, they have so much experience doing this. They invested over 200 million in this FTX trading platform. And a few days ago, they had to write down the entire investment to zero. How meaningful are funding discussions inside a VC firm when you're looking at investing such a huge amount of money? Would there not have been more due diligence to have seen some of these cracks? And what do you think went wrong? And what does this say about how VCs should be doing their due diligence? Yeah, so I it has been obviously a big a big explosion that we saw last week, and I think there is I think a meaningful impact for the crypto world and for investing into the crypto world and confidence of people in doing so. But I regarding sort of like judging single investments, I don't feel I'm in the right position to do so. They, these are great investors, great yeah. firms that look at certain things. Also, if you invest into crypto, there's a specific knowledge often of people that look you know spend a lot of time in crypto, and I'm I'm not in the details of FTX. But I think my comment on it is simply it shows it shows to people that venture capital is risk capital mm -hmm. and that even if one secures funding from the best brands out there in the world, even if very good VC funds do diligence on you, it doesn't mean that you are going to be successful and it doesn't mean that things cannot go wrong after. And I think that was something which we were a bit blended by over the past two, three years where almost everything which funds have backed 
went well because yeah. uprounds were doing so quickly and yeah. the short feedback cycles of fast uprounds and other great funds investing after led a bit to wrong signaling sometimes on on the fundamentals of some businesses if we look at them today when the market has correct and i think the ftx example shows that even some of the most prominent and best companies still have risk especially if they're in the areas like crypto and this is part of venture capital and the example you mentioned with Sequoia investing a large ticket there is, of course, a big and large investments with the math of that will like also have an impact on their fund. But with the math of venture capital, they have a couple of other large winners with the power law that will make the returns of the funds. And it's, this is what really drives the performance then. Yeah. If you look at the due diligence in an early stage company, which is what Creandum does, right? Early stage. How do you do due diligence to make sure that you can it, as best as possible, protect against these type of explosions later on? Yeah. <clears throat> I think at the early stage to the diligence, I would eliminate the word protect from it because it's more, can we identify the, the yeah. upside? Can we identify the next big thing? Mm. That's what I usually spend my due diligence on. Mm. In a seed company, of course, you need to see that, let's say we have detected that this is a market that is extremely attractive. The founder is building, hopefully, like the next big thing he is potentially shaping a new category. The market is large enough. Product looks, initial product looks very good. He has maybe first test users with very engaged and good feedback or mm. even good data on it. So many of the things you you look for, and let's say that checks out, then of course you look at also at is the right legal setup in place? Is the right governance in place? You do a check, are these trustworthy individuals and these things? But I think the main part of the due diligence is first going into identifica identification of the right companies and opportunities. Yeah. And then often investors do, a, typically after signing a term sheet, there's this legal closing process where yeah. startup lawyers and investor lawyers usually spend three weeks, two to three weeks together and looking at are the accounts right set, set up? Is the company actually exist? Is Does the financials look right? Is the money in the bank account actually there on the bank account? Make it maybe a very small and light uh, financial DD on it by an auditor, but that's but that's like what investors do to protect themselves. But the main part goes into, in the early stage in particular, finding the big winners and identify, yeah. identifying the right opportunities. It switches a bit when you get to very late stage growth rounds, like Series D, E, and then sometimes also private equity players coming in, where there's a bit more of that aspect of protecting what is there. Yeah. Because in the early yeah. stage, not so much is there yet. There's not so much to protect. <laughs> Actually, you bring a really good point in terms of that early stage and finding those really big winners. When you are a VC for a very long time, you become experienced in certain patterns. Like you, you're trained to recognize certain things because you've invested in that sector multiple times, or maybe you have a thesis around specific areas. And so you become attuned to finding opportunities there. But how do you balance that with finding an Airbnb or an Uber, which was like, you know, nothing that existed before? What is your method for finding these outside stars? Yeah, I think first, if there's a clear method that one could apply, it would be easy and we would all spot <laughs> them. So it's a combination of, I think, analytical thinking, believing, gut feeling, and also very much down to the entrepreneur. But I think what can you do to maximize your chances of spotting one of these? I think it's 
in particular to find the outliers, a, a, a thing I overemphasize and focus on is the market. And if you look at the market, that it's something can become an outsized company. If something becomes a 300, 400 million company or the market allows to build a 300 to 400 million company, it might be a very great outcome for this individual f- company or entrepreneur. But if you think about the AB- Airbnbs in the world, need a much larger market to sustain yeah. that. In the case of Airbnb, it's a good example where one that shows if you look at the market, you really need to think about future market and about how adoption curves can change over time. So in the beginning, people thought, who would rent out their flat to other people? That's a very small market. No one would do that. Yeah. You know, that's just one of the flaws. But theoretically, if you think about it, almost every homeowner out there, if he's legally allowed, can rent out this his flat. And the or the amount of sort of like overnight stays that are happening. So the market is, the TAM is actually much, much larger and it's massive. And so I think that's something I'm looking at very deeply of like, how big is the market? And then do I think smart enough about the market in the future and how the market expansion could happen and in which directions you can expand? Because yep. that's typically most of the large outliers, they they didn't have the same vision at seed versus when you speak to them at a series C or D or when they have become the big winners out there. And so it's about being open about market expansion. Yeah. And the second aspect I think is in particular around the founder and entrepreneur. And there I there's many different type of founders which are great. But I think one thing I personally like is to find spiky founders that have at least something which is spiky about them, which is a bit unusual. Or, uh, And I typically like it also if people are like, if you could really feel the passion and obsession of founders about something and about making it work. And I think that's something I at least filter a bit more than, than for other things. Spiky meaning like some sort of edge or something unique about them? Is that what you mean by spiky? Yeah, some sort of edge, like some dimension where they are just extraordinary. Before we get into funding, what's the decision process for investing in a company? Yeah, we have investment team members spread across San Francisco, London, Stockholm, Berlin. But when we see a deal that is interesting, we try to make sure that the people in the team look at it that have uh, that are best positioned for that deal, that have most experience in the area okay. and the best knowledge into it. And so we do, we form small deal deal teams of two to three that then evaluate the opportunity. So let's say I speak something that is very interesting in the SaaS, which is an area that I look at closely. And then I likely pull in, for example, our associate Nick and the two of us work on it. uh, And probably uh, over time in the process, I also pull in maybe another partner to chat with and face the entrepreneur too. And then we're like two, three people that in a small group discuss this deal. The process is usually that you have a couple of calls where you go deeper and deeper after each call and potentially you visit each other in person or you do it via Zoom. You meet some more team members, usually maybe the co-founder, and then the we discuss it internally in a, a full team meeting where we calibrate. Of, we actually all think this is uh, very interesting. It's like a, a calibration before we actually bring something into IC. And then the if there are any remaining questions there, the deal team addresses these, the deal team does further work on it, and then it brings companies into IC. So this means presenting to the full investment team. And how it works with us, it's typically a 45 minutes presentation where the entrepreneur comes in 
and presents to the full investment team. And then afterwards, we have an internal presentation where the deal team talks more about the deal, what gets them excited about it, why they love it, what are some things to ponder and question marks. And then we decide internally on it and vote on a deal. And after that, there's a mandate to for the deal and the decision is done. And then hopefully one gets together with the entrepreneur in a positive case and partners up. So, and um, it's a unanimous vote or like a majority? It's it's a majority vote. It's not a unanimous vote. Okay. So let's talk about the funding process. So you've raised 15 rounds of funding from pre-seed to series C with valuations from 20 million to a billion. So a ton of expertise, a wealth of knowledge that you've acquired doing this. Maybe we'll start with which is harder, seed or series A? And has that changed in the time that you've been in VC? I don't want to say it really depends. So I think the hardest round is always seed because Mm. it's the first validation that your idea is good enough. And I know many founders out there that have not been able to raise venture capital because either the business has not been right for it or it hasn't been the great best fit or there wasn't enough conviction on it. Many reasons. Raising seed, getting the first validation that your idea and team, et cetera, is the right one is probably, I think, the hardest to start. That said, when you, for example, are a very experienced team that, let's say, comes out of a big winner, like you're the head of data science from Spotify and yeah. you come out to build something in in data science. I think the likelihood that you raise a seed round is actually pretty high because you probably have some good thoughts about the space. You thought about which companies we build. So that's probably the easier round, but making the product work and getting to the right metrics actually that you need to get to series A then is the harder thing. It depends a bit about the starting point, but yeah, then I think the series A is where it comes down to more numbers and we, where you actually need to show more. So there it's actually, it needs to work, which is the tougher part. Yeah. So I want to actually work through with you the process for fundraising. So should we do a seed or should we do series A? Or maybe we do one and then you can just talk about where it's different. Let's assume a a series A because that's probably the case for many where um, they're already building and then they go out. Yeah. Yeah. So if we go for if we go for series A, so I, I firmly believe that different process preparation actually really changes the likelihood of raising funding and then also depend decide on also on which players you which VC funds are you able to raise from. And mm-hmm. so I think about fundraising very much like a structured sales process that has three phases of high level planning, then concrete preparation and then running an active process. And so when portfolio companies of ours go racing or that I work with, we mm-hmm. spend actually a lot of time with this. And as you mentioned, I personally have worked with roughly 15 funding rounds so far. And there is a, you can see the differences that also process impact has on the dynamics of the different rounds. But what, what should you typically define? If we go through those three phases, let's start with high level. That's the first question one needs to ask, ask yourself, like, what's the objective of the round? What is the size of the round? What's the timing? When should I do it? And for timing, for example, I think it's the right thing to think about it is always at least six months before cash out. Mm. And then I would be strategic around the moment of where you do it. So keep seasonality in mind. Mm. When you have a business that has always a strong Q4, 
go out in January. When your spring yep. is always the best, go out in June. And prioritize growth and momentum in terms of when point in time of when you want to race. And then you should, one thing to keep in mind is try to avoid holiday seasonality on the investor side, like shortly before Christmas or in August. Yeah. Many people are on holiday. And if you think about your sales funnel or VC funds you want to talk with, it's just a pity if you reach out to, let's say, uh, 25 funds and half of them in August are currently on vacation because it's school holidays. Just keep that in mind. So in the planning phase, you looked at timing, you look at seasonality, you make sure that it's not during holiday period. What else? Yeah, and you looked at your objectives at the round size, you define roughly how much you think you will need to raise and also who to raise from. Do you want to do it from VCs, from strategics, from corporates, from agent and, and prepare prepare for it. And you also look out for what are potential roadblocks that could come up in the next couple of months that I should have keep in mind or look at maybe from my last round, what were main rejection reasons from last round? Let's say if people have told you your burn is too high or if people have told you your unit economics are not good or your CAC is too high. Have I addressed these questions in the meantime? And will I be able to present something which fits this feedback also? So that in the next months, while you lead up to the race, you can fine tune those last metrics where you think they will be in a state where investors really like them for your next round as well. And then you get into the preparation phase, which for me starts anything one to five months before a fundraise. And okay. that means actually... What is preparation phase? I see it month one to six is building up a warm pipeline. Yeah, And I think it's very important to prioritize like how much time should you spend about meeting investors? Oftentimes founders get inbound from investors, pinging them like, hey, I love your business. I would love to chat. If you, if you are, let's say a hot business and have raised maybe a hot round before, if you would pick up all those intro, intro requests, you could spend your whole day on it and it's a waste of time and you should rather build your business. But I think my approach to it is for investors that you consider a serious contender for your next round, you should take a 30 minutes intro call and build the first relationship, focus on the storyline. No need to share a lot of numbers yet mm. that you can do later on the fundraise, but it's a it's an introduction call where you figure us out, hey, these, this fund is actually a fund that could fit us well. Prioritize them for having them on top of my mind for the next round, or these are people I like or don't like. And I think oftentimes I get asked if they ping me four weeks later, they do another relationship building chat. And there my, my take is usually it's enough mm. to have one intro chat before yeah, And maybe shortly before a fundraise, you can, if investors proactively ask for it, do a second one warm up. But it's mostly only worth it if you're more complex B2B mm. industries where it's worth to explain the industry more to investors before your fundraise so that they have less need of understanding and it yeah. while you're raising. But for more straightforward business models and industries, I think just having that relationship is usually enough. And then there typically advice to have a handful or just a couple of ones who you actually might know a little bit better. Are your portfolio companies always in the place where they have these investor calls? What about those that need to reach out to people for Series A that are cold? What is your recommendation there? Yeah, it of course depends very much by company. I think when fortunately for, let's say, when you raised your seat from Crandom, many of the top investors out there globally track our portfolio and very yeah. actively when there's the seat round announced with a new credit portfolio company, they have the founder has 10, 20 inbound emails after in his inbox and say, hey, let's chat, et cetera. Okay. But let's say you've raised 
maybe an angel round or didn't even announce a seed round and there's just a little bit less visibility on on you or the space you're building, then I think it makes sense to proactively try to, over time, over six months before the fundraise, establish first VC relationships. And you can do that via, of course, your angels or your personal network, other entrepreneurs, friends. Try to get people to recommend you or to investors to spend time on you or get to know you. Mm. Because very often I get people telling me, an entrepreneur tells me, hey, Peter, this guy is really good. You should meet him at some point. And I was like, totally. Yeah. And then we, we reach out to these people and or ask for an intro and get connected to them. So I think the goal is really building up this funnel of warm leads where you had like a warm yep. touch point before. But it, or but this is a fund that I can get an intro through my angel XYZ or my VC previous investor. So know that you can have a good funnel to talk to when you actually go out raising. Okay. And then I would say roughly four or five weeks before, I typically you can, you should do the pre proper preparation for mm -hmm. the round, which means building a deck, building a financial model, get gather together what you need from the data room, make sure you can cover all those metrics that are asked for, you had, have the data for it. And I think one learning here really is that you building a deck doesn't take a week. I've often seen companies be like, oh yeah, I just do the three, four days before or a week before the round. And then you iterate on it and it actually takes much longer. Yeah. So typically what I've seen is that entrepreneurs that prepare very well, build a deck, maybe it takes them a week to build it, but then they iterate it over two, three weeks with their angels, with their investors, with entrepreneur friends. And then after a process of two, three weeks of iteration, and maybe a graphic designer that went over it and made it look very nice, you have, have formed a very good deck with a very good storyline, which is also important. And then do so the- I saw on your yeah. I saw on your Twitter that you have shared templates for a Series A uh, yeah. uh, fundraising can, you, deck, and even a template for financial model and planning, which I thought was really good. But I had a question in this prep stage, because what yeah. I found in the early stages when they're preparing like for a series A round is, first of all, of the numbers, they may not have the systems in place to get the numbers. If they have the systems in place, they may have people who know finance, but may not know how to do SaaS finance and have the SaaS metrics in place. Maybe for your portfolio companies, you help with that. But what if there are other people that are yeah. to series A, they need to have these metrics, but the finance person that they have may not know the metrics that are needed for a fundraise. Yeah. Do you have any advice for them? Totally. So let's say if you're a seed stage company, then of course you often have don't have these things. If you get to series A, which is typically 1 million ARR, sometimes more, sometimes a bit yeah. less, but that means you're already at a significant amount of customers and significant level of 1 million ARR roughly. And at that point, you in SaaS in particular, you should know your metrics. And we're talking about increasing your chances of fundraising. If you don't know your metrics and KPIs, financial KPIs, then it significantly decreases your, your likelihood because investors, especially for something like SaaS, will ask in detail for it. And then you are come across as if you don't know. Yeah. And that's, of course, not what you want to do. Typically, I advise to have, let's say you are, maybe you are a technical founder and you just don't care about all these things. Exactly. Or it's not your strength. 
which is totally fine. You're an amazing technical person. You're an amazing product person. You're an amazing designer. Yeah. The financial part might not be your strength, but get someone on board as, I don't know, as a founder associate, as a head of finance, as a chief of staff, as a head of ops or head of BI, whatever you want, or BI person simply, get someone on board that will pull these things together for you and that will up like good data hygiene. And this is not only for fundraising, of course, but it also helps you to run your bank yeah. and be prudent about investments into acquisition, payback times and generally operations. So I think it's something that most companies do anyway, but it's where you're going to be stress tested on it on during your fundraising when people will ask more questions around it. Do you find there are people with that skill set available easily? People? There are, I would say there are people available for it. Yes. Okay. The word easily, I <laughs> yeah. Finding good people is never just easy, yeah. but I think for this, I think there fits quite a lot of business profiles, and that's at least something which is more accessible than other roles. I think finding that role is, I would say, probably easier than finding an incredible product person or finding an incredible designer. Okay. Um, simply from the huge the, the amount of people with the capabilities out there. And then, yeah, I think once you've now done the full preparation of it, roughly a week before you want to go fundraising, you should do the outreach. And for running that, I would highly recommend to have sort of an investor CRM, like treat it like a sales funnel where you have all the funds listed out that you want to speak to, where you make sure you speak with enough funds. Typically, founders speak to 20, 30 funds or so, and or sometimes even more, sometimes a little bit less. It, it always depends. But I think the one thing which is very important is don't get blended by initial interest because it's the job of a VC to tell yeah. you that I love your business. And so before like you've opened up to them, before you show the things, every VC will tell you, oh, this is really interesting. I love it. We want to learn more. And often founders get blended from it. Of Oh, I only speak only need to speak to five funds because they all love my product so much and I don't need to speak to too many or I don't need to prepare many because they tell me they love it so much. They're so excited. They want to invest. Mm -hmm. But then actually when it comes to the process, the dropout rate is really high. Mm. And when you then have those dropouts and you realize, oh shit, actually it wasn't that easy and I need more people to talk to. I need to prepare more. Then time runs a little bit against you. So um, How many people would, would you recommend they reach out to in the top of the funnel? Do you have a, a guidance on that? When I speak to entrepreneurs, I think many speak to 10 to 20 people. And then if they need more, they speak to more. But I think handling, for example, handling more than 20 conversations at the same time is difficult mm. because you also need to follow up, answer questions, yeah. have time for the follow-up call, make time for a visit and these things. And it depends on how much you think you can handle at the same time. And then it's if the first if five funds drop out, maybe you can loop in two, three more funds to fill the funnel up. Is this also the stage where you talk about valuation? Okay, now let's finish the process okay. first. I think running an active process, a few learnings maybe from it is yeah. make sure the founder commits enough time for fundraising. It's often underestimated like how much time these calls take. Ideally, you also have maybe one person supporting the founder, let's say with preparing the numbers, with preparing the data requests and these things and make sure you, I always say four to four to five investor calls a day. It's mm. probably what you can handle. If you cramp in too many of these calls, then you get tired and your yeah. pitch performance goes down. Yeah. So also don't overdo it. Make sure you sleep enough. You make sure you have high energy enough for every pitch because that counts a lot. And then it's 
pushing funds through the funnel. So mm -hmm. if you if funds speak to you and then you don't hear from them for three, four days, follow up. Uh, if they really hear from them, follow up again. And then they need to say yes or no to continue. But what you really want to have is push them through the funnel and follow up if they have interest or not, and not just wait for them to come back. If they're very interested, they're very likely to come back very quickly and ask for the next call and these things. But it's better to really manage this funnel actively and push them through. And then let's come to the valuation part and these things. Like to be really able to negotiate evaluations and all these things, you need multiple term sheets. And you can have your strategy for it, but the proper leverage comes when you have two term sheets that you can compare. Yeah. But there's the, I think the classical standard of roughly 20% dilution out there. And depending yeah. on the company, sometimes it's slightly higher, sometimes it's slightly less. It's also depending on stage. And, and I most of the times I see it's the best strategy that VCs come in with an offer and not you telling, I want... 50 million valuation and then it might be off and tries away VC, drives away VCs or it's too low and you could have gotten mm. higher. Mm. So VCs typically have a good feeling of what to price for. So I wouldn't be too vocal about this is exactly the valuation I want because in the end it's about demand and supply. Yeah, that's really good advice. Have you seen any changes in the guidance for valuations now given the market conditions from a year ago? I've heard half of what it used to be? Is that what you're seeing as well? Um, I think it's depending on stage. If we're talking okay. about, for example, Series B, uh, I would say half is a good estimate. If we're talking about Series A, 30, I would say 30% down, 30, mm. yeah, 30 to 40% down. If we talk about seed, it's actually not that much down, more like 20% down or 20 to 30% down, I would say. So not completely half. No. Let's say I've seen many early seed rounds being done at 8 million pre or 10 million pre last year. And these rounds still happen at 8 to 10 million pre. And then the seed rounds with traction and some ARR happening sometimes at 15 or 20 even. Mm. And the price maybe has changed 20 to 30%, but it hasn't halved. So it, it, seed, it, it didn't change too much yet. It went a bit down, but it didn't slash in half. Okay. That's really valuable how you're also talking through the common mistakes that you see in every stage and, and some of the things that founders should keep in mind as they're going through it. A anything more to add? I think the last thing is that what has also changed is simply now in the current market rounds. Last year, everything was done super fast. Now with velocity going a little bit down, I would also expect slightly more time for your fundraise. And if last year, very fast processes have gone in two to three, two to three weeks yeah. or two weeks, maybe you should calculate more anything three to six weeks for it. And of course, it can also take longer if it doesn't go well, but just account for that. Yeah. Okay. And then you're good to go. What's the number one mistake that you see most entrepreneurs make when they're looking to go Series A? I think it's a point I mentioned of don't get blinded by initial interest. Mm. When everyone tells you in the beginning that it's their job. Yeah. And so don't get blinded by too much by that data point, but just... What counts is a term sheet. When you have a term sheet, they actually love it. Before that, it's always about conversion and sales mode. What about portfolio companies that you have that you don't think are prepared, are in a good place to raise money now because they don't have the right metrics? What is your advice to those companies? I mean, working there, it depends on the runway you have. For some, yeah. if runway is short, it's of course difficult, then you need to actually 
explore different paths of potentially also exit M&As, uh, alternative yeah. ways of funding, moving towards profitability instead of a funding round and these things. Yeah. But let's say in the normal case, when you have the opportunity, I can raise or not raise at the moment. I would work hard on on making the right changes to to bring the metrics in place. And then because the funding market right now look is just tougher. Many yeah. things that say, let's say if things go medium well, yeah. the likelihood of fundraising is just significantly lower this year than last year. Yeah, And so it's good to stretch your runway or conserve uh, cash in other ways conserve basically. cash so you get to times where it will yeah. either it, your business will look better yeah or funding environment will look better okay we've almost come to the end of the podcast so i don't want to take up more of the time but i have a few questions at the end that i'd like to ask you peter sure and i usually sure. start with if you could start a movement to change something or further a cause what would it be and why many things come to my mind but if i think about entrepreneurship as this is the topic of today i would say i would way in into the movement of better better ESOP for, for entrepreneurs in Europe and in particular yeah. Germany where there's a big movement but there's also many other countries where we just need to make employee and entrepreneur incentivization much more attractive also from a tax perspective and legal perspective so entrepreneurs can have similar good conditions as in other countries to build amazing companies. I love that. Yeah, absolutely. What is a favorite book of yours? That is... Probably The Alchemist by Paulo Coelho. Okay. I've had that mentioned a, a couple of times. And I know that you've lived in a number of different places. What's your favorite European city and why? My favorite European city is Barcelona. Not because I work with two of our portfolio companies there, Factorial and Abacum, but also because I lived there during my studies and experienced the city in more depth. And it's the ideal combination between sun, beach, culture, sport, great okay. people, great food and a vibrant ecosystem, uh, entrepreneurial ecosystem as well. It's got a bit of everything. Okay. What about a productivity tip? What, what do you use to keep yourself productive? That has to be my favorite productivity tool. It's called Amy. So amy.so. It's a fusion between calendaring and to-dos with a very amazing design and UX. Oh, nice. And a favorite quote. It could be yours or it could be someone else's quote, but a quote that is very meaningful to you. Yeah. Mm, I think in this context here, I go for a quote of someone else uh, and it's a more well-known one. It's tell me and I forget, teach me and I will remember, involve me and I, I will learn from Benjamin Franklin. And I think that resonates very well with how I think often about learning by doing and giving people, uh, involving people a lot because I think it's the best way to actually learn and grow and move forward. Great. Thank you so much, Peter, for being on this podcast with me today. I really enjoyed our conversation and hopefully entrepreneurs will find it very useful as well. Thank you. Amazing. Thanks, Anita. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a review. I don't charge guests to be on the show and the ratings and review of the show stay alive. Thank you very much for listening and until next time, keep building.